Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get some accountability and your discussions about the text will be much richer. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet grown to enjoy the marvelous Word of God. More information is available at thoroughlyequipped.org. And we also run groups on Zoom. So if you'd like to join one of those, just shoot me uh, an email or a message on Facebook. For the radio show, we're in the book of Genesis, a great book. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Now, the last few weeks, six or so, we've been in the life of Abraham, and those shows, like all of the others, are available on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, and the like. And we started with the amazing faith of Abraham early in chapter 12. And then one of the promises there was that he would have a nation, we would have peoples, that would come from him, even though he and Sarah were childless. And so the end of chapter 12 has the possibility that Pharaoh and Sarah would have a child, and that's stopped by God. Uh, In terms of an heir, uh, Abraham's looking to Lot, but that falls apart in chapters 13 and 14. In 15, Abraham's imagining it might be his chief servant, Eliezer, but God promises, no, you're going to be the biological father. And that leads to chapter 16, where Abraham... Uh, and Hagar conceive a child named Ishmael. And so that took us to last week's show. We had the central chapter in Abraham's narrative, the covenant of circumcision, and also the promised child through Sarah. It's finally made explicit that not just Abraham will be the biological father, but Sarah will be the biological mother. And we did the first part of chapter 18 last week as well, the three visitors, part one of that, including Sarah being told that she will be the mother. So today we're in part two of that visit. And it's interesting that after announcing the birth of the promised son and the life that comes with that, the story, the rest of the way, is going to be centered on death and judgment. But we'll get to that after the break. So Lord, be with us today as we read your scriptures, help us to understand you and ourselves better and what you want from us and for us. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 18 and 19 today. We're into the second part of the visit from the Lord and two others. The the two others are described as men and angels, and it's possible it's a pre-incarnate version of Jesus and an incarnate version of the Holy Spirit, or maybe it's angels. We're not sure. But the remarkable hospitality is coming to an end in chapter 18, verse 15. That's where we left things off. So we'll start reading today in verses 16 through 19. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Verse 16 starts with two interesting little details. 
they look down towards Sodom. Now, for the reader, this is foreshadowing. And if you know what's coming next, you know exactly what they're looking at and why. But does Abraham suspect their next stop or move? We're not so sure about that. Later in 16, his amazing hospitality continues, uh, a sense of intimacy as he continues the visit. It's as if he doesn't want to part company, uh, which is a wonderful picture. So we can start with that, that he doesn't want his guests to go. He wants to spend as much time as is humanly possible with them. But also given what follows in the next three verses, it's also possible that he's curious and or worried about the Lord uh, and what's going to happen here. Maybe he's also interested in justice and he wants an opportunity to engage them on their next move. That's certainly possible as well. So 17 through 19, the fancy word for this is a soliloquy. Uh, it's uh, If we were in theater, this would be the a main character kind of stepping off stage to speak to his mind to the audience. And that's what we have for us here. And let's start with, it's just a wonderful moment, right? It signals their friendship and partnership. It tells us God's desire to counsel Abraham within that relationship. Uh, there's three references uh, in the scriptures, Second Chronicles 20, verse 7, James 2, 23, Isaiah 41, verse 8, where Abraham is called God's friend. It's interesting we are friends of God, but here, this is God's friend. And Job 29.4 is something interesting as well, where Job himself says he, he has an intimate friendship with God. And so for all the references to contract and covenant, and, and Abraham being God's servant, here the reference, the picture, is more to friendship, which is pretty cool. So there's a wrestling in front of the reader, not in front of Abraham, about God revealing himself more fully uh, to Abraham, and of course to us as well. And the punchline of this wrestling and this communication and this thought is that God wants Abraham's future teaching, his life, his influence on others to be informed by the cause and effect to follow. And in a nutshell, that's God's righteousness and his justice and judgment. And it's also a warning about God's wrath towards sin, including the sin of his own people, the chosen, right? If the chosen are uh, having trouble, that doesn't mean they'll be exempt from judgment. The scope of this is interesting as well. Verse 18 refers to nation and nations. Verse 19 refers to children and household. And we just saw in the previous chapter with uh, Abraham brought into circumcision at day eight that God wants the father to be involved early. So verse 19, I think, follows very easily from that, that the father is supposed to influence his children in the household, but then ultimately it extends to the nations in verse 18. Or think about it in, in terms of time frame, right? Verse 19 is the immediate short-run emphasis, but it leads to verse 18's big-picture, long-run goals. Verse 19 also has the phrase, the way of the Lord, and there are two possibilities in contrast to this. One would be not to know of the way of the Lord, and that's the way it had been mostly uh, in the earlier part of Genesis, or one might know God's ways, the way of the Lord, but decide to follow our own ways anyways. Uh, and Abraham's not going to do either of those. He's going to be instructed, and then he's going to follow. And one of the crucial aspects of that way of the Lord is the righteousness and justice of verse 19. Now, they're related but different terms. Both are crucial, both focused on works, but the former is more personal, right? One's personal righteousness, and the latter is more political, legal, and social. 
I like what Leon Cass says here. God undertakes to give Abraham some instruction in political justice, indispensable for a national founder who cares for righteousness. The encounter is arranged by God and precisely for such political purposes, as he makes clear in a speech to himself and to us, that reveals for the first time his true interest in Abraham. Abraham, the founder of a great nation, must do righteousness and justice and command his children after him to do likewise. For only in this way can Abraham bring the Lord's righteous ways to the entire world and thus be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Although he has shown himself to be personally righteous, Abraham, because he is to be a political founder, needs also some instruction in political justice. I think this is fascinating in light of God's plans for Abraham, but it also points forward to God's plans for us. It's not enough to aim for personal righteousness. That's important. It's crucial. It's a necessary condition, but it's not sufficient that he also wants us to work for justice. And this applies to everything from, you know, federal government policy to my encounters with other people, particularly the marginal in everyday life. All right, let's go to verses 20 through 22. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. A few interesting things in these verses. Verses 20 and 21 mention an outcry, and that can be against sin in general, but the word is used especially with respect to injustice and violence. The first use of it in Scripture is Genesis 4.10, where Abel's blood cried out. Exodus 3.7, another prominent use of it, the misery of God's people as they're being oppressed by the Egyptians. So while there are all sorts of sins that we might consider, these sins seem to be particularly those that are violent, oppressive, unjust, right? The difference between a vice where I'm largely doing damage to myself rather than a crime where I'm doing direct and significant harm to others. Verse 21, the verbs see and know are interesting and I think surprising here. It's not a lack of knowledge on God's part, but we're given that picture here, but it's to imply his intimate concern and his concern for justice. He's not merely responding to complaints and hearsay. He's going to go investigate gives it very much a legal justice feel to it. It teaches us about God's character, and this is just difficult to do without a human description. It doesn't mean God is human, but it does mean that he's willing to let human aspects be used to describe his character, which is, I think, fascinating. It also signals one more chance. We always talk about God's patience for repentance, and if I'm going to see and know and look and investigate implies the possibility, at least, of there being an opportunity for repentance. Second Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Verse 22, the men, again, these are angels we learn later, or perhaps an incarnate Jesus and the Holy Spirit, walk or turn away leaving Abraham with the Lord and leaving the reader with the question, what will Abraham do with this? And then we extend it to ourselves. What would you do in this moment? All right, verses 23 through 25. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? 
So Abraham is in God's court, so to speak, and he begins to argue his case. Verses 17 through 19 were about the partnership and the teaching and the blessing. Verses 20 and 21 were about justice. And now we see them brought together in this passage. In a sense, it's a conversation between two judges about the fitting judgment and sentence of Sodom and Gomorrah. But as Leon Cass puts it, far more than a master class in political science, Abraham is to become God's partner, as it were, in executing political justice. And in a nutshell, Abraham challenges God on a matter of justice. Now, we see this most famously in the book of Job, but it happens elsewhere too. Moses, the prophets, the psalmists all do this. Cass notes, Abraham dares to challenge not only God's proposed conduct, but even his very justice. And we'll talk about this more as we go, but this applies to what God wants from us. Can you imagine doing what Abraham does here? And if you can't, then your relationship with God is not all that God wants it to be. As God does, Abraham displays a balance of justice and mercy. You can see it in, in Abraham here. He prays for God to be merciful and just. He's neither joyous nor indifferent towards Sodom's sin, and we see his heart, therefore, for justice and righteousness. It's very easy to fail in either regard for Abraham, and I think for us as well, right? To emphasize justice, but not righteousness, righteousness, but not justice, to be happy uh, at the failings of other people, and we see none of that from Abraham. And this is what the text had promised us in verses 17 through 19, the wrestling, the teaching, the determining of what is right and just. Now, in his opening argument and plea, I think we would say the style here is bold and intense. There's no preface. There's no apology. As Borgman puts it, this is no mumbled piety. It's strong and clear and challenging. And there's clear application to our prayer lives. Hebrews 4.16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The parables that Jesus tells in Luke 11 and 18 are the strongest versions of these, and they are connected to the idea of ask, seek, and knock. Patrick Henry Reardon says these are the very model of fervent intercessory prayer, unafraid of pressing a point with God. Verse 23, notice the verb approached. Abraham initiates and approaches God. This is not God approaching him with it. God's available, but Abraham initiates. In a, in a weird sense, it's the word of Abraham coming to the Lord rather than vice versa. All right, there's much more to say about this, but we need to take a break at this point. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in the second half of chapter 18 and into chapter 19 this week, where Abraham is arguing with God about justice and righteousness at the end of chapter 18. We've seen God's goals for Abraham within this discussion, and we've seen Abraham go to bat in verses 23 through 26 in this opening part of the debate, haggling argument about justice and righteousness. And one interpretation question that's really interesting here, I think, is verses 17 and 20, God speaks to himself the first time and perhaps the second time. If you look at verse 20 again, it's not clear from the text if God is speaking this just to us or to Abraham as well. If Abraham does not hear those words voiced, it's interesting that Abraham starts this entire discussion and he anticipates God's judgment. 
he did something similar back in chapter 13 with Lot. Remember how he preemptively saw a problem budding or about to start, and so he stepped into that. And so if Abraham is just standing there with God and God is thinking this to himself, so to speak, in verse 20, Abraham's initiative here is really impressive. In any case, Abraham clearly initiates discussion of destruction since no judgment is explicitly mentioned and no punishment is mentioned. So he's assuming that God is going to pursue destruction, which is itself, I think, fascinating. Leon Cass says, God was still investigating, but Abraham, far from shrinking from punishing the wicked, is the one who suggests it. Not compassion or mercy, but justice is on Abraham's mind. So this passage gets a lot of play for Abraham's mercy, but if we recognize what's happening here, it's Abraham who's talking about destruction already. And so it's really this perfect combination of justice and mercy that we're looking for, that we see in God, and that we're hoping for in Abraham. Now, another question that pops up here is, why did he pick the number 50? Well, the easy way to deal with this is to say, well, apparently Abraham considered that to be appropriately humble and just, at least for his initial approach. But it does tell us some other things. For one thing, a number that big tells us that he's going to bat for family and directly or indirectly for strangers, and particularly the righteous. And it didn't have to go this way. We saw him practice some amazing hospitality, but the hospitality was towards those who presented themselves at his immediate doorstep. For us, it's one thing to be nice to the people who come to us. It's another thing to seek out right, others and to extend hospitality and justice to them. You could picture Abraham growing apathetic with his wealth or his age. You could picture him fading with the blessing or his preoccupation with Ishmael in hand and Isaac on the way. You can picture him giving up on Lot and others who should have known better. And he had delivered Lot in chapter 14's rescue. Now he prays for God to act. He doesn't take the action on himself as he had previously. And maybe there's some parallels here between his trust in terms of Ishmael versus Isaac's birth, right? He had worked to save Ishmael. With Isaac, he's relying purely on God's promises, letting God do most of the action as he's looking for God to do here with Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think most important, Abraham here is willing to rock the boat by arguing with God and potentially threaten his promises. Again, his boldness here and later his persistence signal an intimate knowledge of an authentic and deep relationship with God. This is not propitiation of an arbitrary and capricious lowercase g God. And for us, it's a model of our efforts to hold each other accountable and for us to pursue God's in prayer and in relationship. Abraham is close to God and he loves others. A lot of times we use the triangle model with marriage and we talk about if we're closer to God, then we'll love our spouse more fervently. And that's true for Abraham here as well. He is close to God and he loves others as a result of that. And one last point, and to be a bit more precise, he's concerned that the righteous would not be punished rather than the guilty going free. And there's two concerns here, and there are inherent trade-offs here. There's justice for the righteous, and there's mercy for the guilty. And notice that there's injustice either way, right? If the guilty go unpunished or the innocent are, are punished, that's not great. I mean, both of those are terrible in their own way. 
Keep in mind, too, that a lot of this is a passionate and personal interest to Abraham, too, as well. Will God deliver on his decidedly long-run promises to him? If God is capricious or careless in this, of what value are God's promises to him? If Abraham is personally righteous, might he get nailed by God for some other reason down the road? Should he work really hard to avoid guilt by association? We'll learn later that Lot is considered righteous, but is he, how much trouble is he in because he's in unrighteous Sodom? All of this is obvious to us, but to Abraham, walking with God in this relationship without you know the, the bulk of biblical history behind him, without Jesus, without the Holy Spirit, Abraham's got some questions here, right? So part of this is going to bat for others. Part of it is him trying to figure out God as well. Or maybe it's more of an intellectual or theological curiosity to Abraham. And in line with verses 17 through 19, God desires to educate him on this and to have Abraham explore this. Does Abraham's intuition about justice generally line up with God's? Maybe this is exploratory for Abraham, trying to figure out exactly what God thinks about these matters. Okay, so this takes us to the remarkable verses 27 through 33. I'm going to back up to 26 and start there. The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. What an amazing passage. Let's start with some big observations here. First of all, there's more pronouns than names in the NIV, but also in Hebrew as well. It's almost as if God and Abraham are interchangeable here. And what a cool picture this is, that we have this lining up of God's will and interest and heart with Abraham's. And the same, hopefully, is the case with us. It's also evident that after his initial boldness, Abraham's style now moderates with a series of self-effacing remarks. Verses 27 and 31, he talks about being so bold, as if it's easy now. Verse 27, the humility of nothing but dust and ashes. Like Abraham, we are dust and ashes, infused with the Spirit of God, but we can commune with God. So his humility here is amazing. So after the, the brash opening of 23 through 25, his petitionary prayer here is bold, respectful, humble. He intervenes on behalf of others, and he's passionate about justice. And hopefully the same thing is true of our prayers as well. Now, to the process itself, he's in essence bargaining and haggling with God. And I think that's interesting that God even allows this, even though it might seem to reduce his dignity. Here's a man haggling with God. And Maybe that's why he decides to go so slow with the numbers. It signals Abraham's patience and humility, which is important. He asks for five more and then five more and then ten more three times in a row. He starts small and then gets bigger, which is interesting. Is he getting bolder again? Is he not wanting to waste God's time, so to speak? Uh, it's, it's interesting. I don't know what to make exactly of the numbers, but it is interesting that the pace picks up a bit. I mean, this is amazing stuff. 
Maybe God would have wanted Abraham to push even harder. It's kind of like a cautious kid when the parent wants him to ask something, right? Uh, we, I think that's the picture that comes to mind for, for me. And God agrees down to the number 10 with Abraham's request. Borgman says God not only listens but agrees. The partners see eye to eye. Abraham is learning to see more and more like God sees, to walk with God, to walk before God. I think in this we can think of Abraham as growing metaphorically from a child to a young adult and how that process works with independence and learning and growing and finding a mind of one's own but lining it up with the way life needs to be. This is not a vassal, it's a partner. This is not a servant, this is a friend. This is not a yes man, but the leader, the founder of a nation that will bless all other nations. And we see things in Abraham here that we can't imagine seeing in Noah. So then why does Abraham stop at 10? He says once more in chapter 18, verses 32, so that kind of warns us. Maybe he knows or senses that God is not going to go any further than that. And God does allow no more. He abruptly ends the negotiation in the next verse. But why 10? Why not push it to one? It could be the limit of Abraham's compassion, but I think that's unlikely given what we know about him before and after this story. You might think, well, maybe 10 is the number in Lot's family. No, there there were six. But along those lines, maybe he's ashamed to ask for a lower number. It would reveal it to be too personal, right? If the number gets too small, then it seems like you're aiming at Lot and his family. Leon Cass picks up this theme and says, Lot becomes the hook God exploits for catching and enlarging Abraham's concern for justice because it would be both ignoble and unjust to engage in special pleading. Abraham cannot make his argument in personal terms. He must make it in terms applicable to both his own and to the strangers alike. And so whatever this is, whether it's growth or something Abraham already had, he is making an appeal not just to family, but for strangers. Another way to read this is that it is focused on the individual. And reading it more figuratively, it would be to say that the bigger picture is now a given. God would save even if there was only one. And Abraham now is resting in that trust and that faith. In our times, we like to say that Jesus would die only for you. And that's true. And so what's the flip side of that in this context? God would save even one righteous person if it came to that. Maybe Abraham has figured that out and is resting in that. In any case, God does go beyond Abraham's specific literal request. He will offer salvation to six people and end up saving four while destroying the city. It's interesting that eight people made it out of the flood, but only four people are going to make it out of Sodom. So this speaks to Abraham's focus on strangers. It focuses on each individual, but it also focuses on the world. This whole passage is a back and forth between salvation for individuals and salvation for a group or city. Do you save the city? Do you save the individuals? And God seems as interested in the city as the individuals. Throughout the Bible, we see this, right? The judgment of cities, nations, and kingdoms. It's not merely about judging individuals. And in practice, that's the way justice works, right? In divine and in human terms, how do you hold each individual perfectly accountable in a communal or relational world. We're all interrelated. 
Perhaps Abraham gains God's perspective, thinking of things in terms of both individuals and the city and the community. Cass says he accepts that politics, the life of cities and communities, necessarily involves the suffering of at least some innocent and righteous people. Political founding and political justice are a sobering business because political justice is not altogether just. As an economist, I see this all the time in public policy, that there are trade-offs and good people get hurt. And that's the necessity of aggregate actions. And when a city is judged or a city is not judged, individuals will be treated inappropriately either way. There are trade-offs there. Another way to look at this is by asking the question, what minimum number is required to redeem or restore a city? Not just the justice angle, but what does it take to turn a city around? The righteous are going to go down with the wicked anyway, If not, and this in a way is better for the individuals. Think about children who are not righteous, but they might be innocent at this point, and their best chance at salvation might be, ironically, destruction. But one righteous man, one small righteous family is not enough. Cass picks up this angle. Most important, Abraham learns that one virtuous man does not make and cannot save a nation by his own merit alone. Of course, this points forward to Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ, who can save by his own merit. But for Abraham and us, it underlines the importance of transmission and multiplication in faith. Cass again says, for Abraham, the lesson could not be more pointed. His excessive preoccupation with God's personal promise, with his own merit and its reward, that is with personal justice, is in fact at odds with the fulfillment of the purpose of God's promise that he become a great nation, steeped in righteousness and doing justice to become a blessing to all the others. It has to go beyond personal justice to something bigger than that. Last observation before we go on here is that Sodom, Abraham, and God are all on trial, so to speak, as we read this chapter. And on God's character, Nahum Sarna notes that the narrative is, is at great pains to demonstrate that God's actions are strictly just. Think about what we saw before the dialogue. We were introduced to Sodom's sin back in chapter 13. Chapter 18, verse 19, we had the purposeful instruction and the intent to bless others. Chapter 18, verse 21, we had an investigation in response to the outcry, the brutal crimes that are mentioned in verses 20 and 21. And we'll see more of the same in chapter 19. Within the dialogue, tons of hints here, right, that the justice here is specific and discriminant. It's not arbitrary and capricious. It defines right and wrong in line with Abraham's questions in verse 25. And in all of this, God allows and even encourages Abraham to explore his justice and mercy, even to the point of giving the impression that God changes his mind with respect to these things. Does God change his mind as we pray? That's uh, beyond my pay grade. But I do like what C.S. Lewis says here. We know prayer changes our heart, and we know that Abraham's heart has been changed as a result of this dialogue with God. All right, let's take a break here on on Facebook, like Pure Radio and Friend Me There. Podcasts are available on Spotify, Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back to The Word Diet. First two segments, we did the second half of chapter 18 of Genesis, the amazing discussion slash argument slash negotiation between God and Abraham. And after chapter 18, we're left in suspense, but only for a little while. Will ten righteous people be found? And if not, or if so, what will God do? What will happen to the angels on their visit? And the narrative allows us, but not Abraham, to see what happens in Sodom. 
So we're moving here from the theory of chapter 18 and Abraham's argument with God to the concrete, right? What's actually going to happen on the ground and what's God going to do about it? It's also interesting, as is often the case in Genesis, that this must be recorded as the account or testimony of Lot or his daughters, given the events in chapter 19 at the end, which we'll cover next week. Or it could just be pure revelation to Moses. But there's no one on the ground except for Lot who's actually going to see this stuff take place. Last point by way of introduction is that we have a contrast here between Abraham, Lot, and Sodom. You have a great man outside of civilization, outside the city looking in. You've got a decent man inside, that's Lot, and then you've got a really messed up society. And what do we do with those three things? So chapter 19, verses 1 through 3 to begin. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords... He said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. So the angels arrive and they experience some wonderful hospitality from Lot, similar to what we saw from Abraham in chapter 18. They're identified here as two angels when in chapter 18 we had three men show up. Now they still seem like men to Lot, chapter 19, verse 12, and to those in the town, chapter 19, verses 5 and 8. But we're told as the readers that these are angels at this point. And the cat's out of the bag, really, after chapter 18. We know that this is not just men, but they still appear to be men to those in the story. Later in verse 1, you've got the gateway, which implies a leadership position, potentially a judge. And if so, chapter 19, verse 9, where they say, who made you the judge over us, would be ironic uh, and interesting. Again, hospitality, verses 1 through 3. He's waiting for the opportunity in verse 1. Perhaps he's being aggressive initiating here as a protector at the city gate. He bows down to them. Verse 2, kind words, a gracious invitation, a foot wash offer. They decline in verse 2, which probably was traditional. But Lot strongly insists in verse 3 and offers a meal. And the meal itself is sort of interesting. He does all the preparation, not the servant or the wife. So he takes it into his own hands, which is interesting. And the bread doesn't have yeast. That would be quicker And it sort of lines up then with the mini exodus that they're going to have out of Sodom, like the exodus that follows in chapter 12, which also has bread without yeast. But for those who know what's coming, it provides an ominous intro to the events that follow. Now, Lot's hospitality is impressive, but it's not quite up to the standards that we had from Abraham. And it's not as vividly described. You might remember from last week's show that Abraham's hospitality was described in great, great detail. Still impressive, though. He practiced hospitality even as he wandered away in so many other aspects of his faith. And despite what follows, it illustrates to us why Second Peter 2 verses 7 and 8 call him a righteous man. And it's tough to tell. Uh, we can't look in the heart. We know Abraham's righteous, but what about Lot? Lot's living in Sodom. That's not ideal, but he's still considered a righteous man. And so the heart of this guy is still in pretty good shape, Not where he needs to be ideally, but not brutal and certainly not rough like Sodom either. It also tells us the importance of hospitality, especially in a Jewish mindset. But it also reminds us that, hey, there's much more to life than that. Last point here is that it would be more difficult to practice hospitality 
in a city like this, at the least in the midst of the violence surrounding that is soon to be revealed. All right, verses four and five, before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Whoa, okay. Uh, That's some rough business right there. Uh, Again, not quite hospitality. (laughs) I mean, what could be a worse form of hospitality than this? Very rough business. This is a mob. It says all the men reminiscent of Genesis 6, verse 5, where it talks about all evil all the time for everyone in the world. And there's likely some hyperbole here, but if you take it on the more literal side, this includes everyone, right? Everyone who's married. It would even include Lot's son-in-laws, if you take this more literally. But this is the height of inhospitality, the height of all sorts of things. Homosexual rape at night, a heavily implied threat, and how quickly the word had spread. It was that evening, right? These new guys come in town, and all of a sudden, this this gang rolls up on Lot's house. It pins down very quickly for the reader just how immoral the people of Sodom were. This is not people stealing apples, right? This is extremely rough business. Patrick Henry Reardon says their failure in the matter of hospitality may not have been the worst of their sins, but it was bad enough for Christ to mention and use it as a reference about how the disciples and the apostles were to deal with those in other cities. And the reference there is Matthew 10, verses 11 through 15. I think it's also interesting that they look for Lot's cooperation here. On the one hand, they want to sound reasonable, and it would be an easier way to go if they're successful, but it also might imply that they thought Lot would go along with them. Verses 6 through 9, Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied, and they said, This fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. Again, wow. I mean, this is just brutal. Verses 6 and 7, you have Lot's courageous attempt to quietly reason with them. I mean, picture this event unfolding. Verse 7, the word translated friends by the NIV is literally brothers. And it's artful rhetorically, but it's also sadly figurative that he is a brother of theirs to some extent. He has aligned himself with these people and their behavior. What does trusting God look like in this context? Does it imply action? Does it imply waiting for heaven's calvary? Uh, Or is it this like the Alamo where this is your last stand? Uh, It's difficult to imagine anything other than you do your best and you stand on the principles you have. Lot doesn't choose the best after that, though. Verse 8, the compromise that he offers here tells us that he thought they might be interested in that. Perhaps he's trying to reveal to them how ridiculous their demands were. Certainly a perverse form of hospitality, not exactly chivalry, not exactly family values. As Matthew Henry observes, of two evils, one must choose the less, but of two sins, we must choose neither. Maybe he should have sacrificed himself, although practically I'm not sure where that gets the rest of the people in the house. There are some parallels here to Abraham offering his wife as his sister, and this turns out probably not to be good for Lot's relationship with his daughters, as we'll see in the postscript in chapter 19, verses 30 through 38. The NIV here, friends, again translated as brothers, in a way he's figuratively offering them incest, which is the way that 
story is going to turn out at the end of chapter 19, but he's trying to foist this on them through his daughters. This is a great lesson on not getting into such a position in the first place. You know, when should one be a light or salt in a rotten or dark world? And when should you get out? And uh, Lot's probably wishing he'd gotten out at this point. Verse 9, the violence here implied and, and more. It's just terrible here. Lot is ridiculed for his hospitality, for taking a noble stand. There's no respect for authority. If he had any, it was only as long as he did what they wanted. They move from lust to anger. They try to violate his house, with it, which is symbolic of rape in a way. Cass observes they turn sadistically against their own when their passions are aroused and their de- desires are opposed. But it's also connected to Lot being an alien. And so it's not just inhospitality and rape and sex and all that. It's xenophobia. They're willing to take advantage of the stranger. They hate the alien. If they're willing to mess with a person this powerful, they're probably willing to mess with anyone who gets in their way. Verses 10 and 11. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. So the angels rescue them. God, in essence, shuts the door here, as he did with the ark. Cass observes, in the city walled against strangers, even doors cannot, without providential assistance, defend a man and his family against hot-blooded, lusting, and raging neighbors. Moreover, as per Abraham's conversation with God about the fate of the righteous, one decent man cannot save or reform a city. Verse 11 has the blindness, it's a practical punishment, sufficiently scary and debilitating, Were they still looking for the door now out of sheer anger versus lust or violence, or did they just shuffle home from here? It's a picture of their impotence and their spiritual status as blind people. Matthew Henry observes justly were those struck blind who had been deaf to reason. Verses 12 and 13, the two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So verse 12, hey, it's time to leave. We'll still save the righteous, at least those in Lot's family, uh, and at least those who respond and are implicitly righteous, but the city is toast. It foreshadows the exodus uh, in Egypt and Revelation 7 3, except for those who have the mark of the Lamb. Verbally, it sounds like the number is open ended. If we think about Abraham's discussion with God, maybe less than 10 would work, greater than 10, maybe. Uh, it still seems to be an open question. And Abraham's prayer, in any case, seems to have paid off. Verse 12 is in the city. Again, if all the men in verse 4 is literal, then the brothers in law would have been blinded as well but it's interesting that they're still allowed to leave the city as well. Verse 13, the outcry again revisited. Uh, We've talked about that before, the violence and oppression implied in that word. All right, good place to take a break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 18 and 19 today, and at the end of the last segment, we'd reach chapter 19, verse 13, where the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is imminent. We're going to skip verses 14 through 22 and verse 26 because they're mostly about Lot, and we'll do that next week as we wrap up Lot's life as covered in Scripture. So we're going to read verses 23 through 25 and get back to the destruction piece of the story. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. 
Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. Verse 23 is a small thing, but it's interesting that God allows light to come first so it can be witnessed more easily. I think from our perspective, it reads like just another day, right? If this were a movie scene, you'd picture a peaceful day on the plains of Zoar, and then all of a sudden, whoa, right? Uh, In those days, especially, battles began at daybreak, and so this is a battle of sorts. And it's interesting that we get to witness this while Lot and company do not. Their backs are turned, and Abraham himself doesn't see the outcome until verse 27 tells us early the next morning. Maybe he slept in a bit, or if it's the day after, apparently he thought it would take longer to reach a decision, but he doesn't catch this until the next day. Now, verses 24 and 25 lay out the punishment. The agent, of course, is God. Was it a just punishment? Well, he had agreed to save the city if there was more than 10, and apparently there weren't. He saved Lot and his family when their relationship with him was questionable. And it certainly looks fine, I think, from the evidence in the text, but ultimately it's up to our faith in God's character. I think when we look at anything that happens in this world, that's what these things come down to. We have evidences, but ultimately it comes down to those evidences, plus faith or not in God's character. The method is burning sulfur, verse 23. Luke 17, 29 mentions fire and sulfur. Verse 25 mentions overthrew, which is a term that's often used for earthquakes, but it's hard to imagine uh, what that would look like exactly. There are no volcanoes geologically in in this area. If there's a partially... Uh, natural explanation to this may be flammable tar or asphalt pits, as are mentioned in Genesis 14.10. The area is known for those, maybe ignited by lightning, but in any case, at least the timing of it is supernatural. God rains down fire here rather than raining down water, as with the flood's judgment, and it's indicative of Sodom's passions and the Lord's wrath that it's fire that's used this time. And the outcome is complete, all life and vegetation. It becomes a symbol of desolation and judgment, through the land, which is a a picture that uh, will be used to describe Israel if they sin in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and other places. It's ironic that Sodom's former fruitfulness is what attracted Lot to this in the first place, this land, but it's withered in flames and disappears in a scorched earth. It's to be replaced by sterility and salt. All right, on to verses 27 through 29. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Verse 27, Abraham goes to see. He's another witness to the events. He's looking down on the disaster and the judgment. Uh, There's some expectation here of answered prayer and God's action, and that's connected explicitly to the salvation of Lot in verse 29. Verse 28, he looks, which is always interesting in Genesis. Looking has often caused trouble. It does for Lot's wife. We'll talk about her in verse 26 next week. He got Lot in trouble with his land choice, which is by looking. And even back to Genesis 3, Eve taking the fruit was a matter of looking. So, But this is a case where the looking is fine. Cass observes, as the salt and the ash rub their painful meaning into our eyes, we city dwellers look around us and tremble. So too does Abraham. Now, there's no recorded response from Abraham. Presumably, it's awe and dread. You know, how many righteous were there? Maybe he presumes Lot is dead and may feel responsible. We know he survived, but Abraham can't tell from this distance. Leon Cass says God shows his mercy, saving Lot, but, and this is crucial, he does not tell Abraham that he has done so. 
There will be time enough later to teach Abraham and his descendants about God's mercy. For the time being, justice must be allowed to sink in without a word of consolation. I think for us, it's interesting that Abraham does have a place in saving Lot, but he doesn't know that. And I think the same is true of our prayers and our actions, that we do them in faith and we don't know the outcome. Many times we aren't told by God what the outcome is going to be, and we just hold in faith that many of those will be fruitful in a way that we don't get to see immediately or maybe ever. Patrick Henry Reardon notes all the connections between Sodom and Egypt. First of all, they're connected in Revelation 11, 8, and 9, but there's several striking features that connect those stories. The deliverance of the just from the midst of the unjust, the violent loss of life among their respective inhabitants, citizens punished for oppressing those who sojourned among them, punished by cataclysmic forces of nature, overwhelmed by consummate darkness. Remember that Egypt will deal with darkness at its ninth plague right before the devastation of the tenth, and the same thing happens here with the blindness in Sodom. Last topic for us today is the sin of Sodom. What sins led to its destruction? Why did God destroy Sodom? And then I want to talk at a little bit of time on a Christian response to homosexuality. A lot of times people link homosexuality to Sodom, and that's certainly one of its sins, but is that why it was destroyed? answer is no, is the short answer. Let's keep the biblical evidence in mind here. First, God decided to to destroy Sodom in Genesis 18, 17, and to argue homosexuality is a key sin or the only sin is a careless inference about Genesis 19 and what happens there. Although the mob wanted to have sex with Lot's guests, we are not told this is the reason Sodom was to be destroyed. And even if it was, it's not homosexuality per se, but homosexual rape that is the issue, particularly towards the vulnerable. Now, there are no specific reasons given. Only chapter 18, verses 20 and 21, and chapter 19, verse 13, talk about the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. It's so great, and their sin is so grievous. Well, as we talked about, the blood cries out, right? Something with respect to murder in Genesis 4, or oppression in Exodus 3. Uh, this is not people engaging in voluntarily homosexual activity. This is rape. This is oppression. This is... Uh, much more forceful than that. Uh, But the word here is outcry. Second point is that we're fortunate to actually have the sin of Sodom defined in the scriptures. Ezekiel 16, 49 and 15 says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen." So we'll talk about that list of sins in a minute, but homosexuality might be one part of one of those things, but it's certainly not the entire list. And the two verses before that are amazing. Verses 47 and 48 of Ezekiel 16, you not only followed their ways and copied their detestable practices, but in all your ways you soon became more depraved than they. As surely as I live, live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. And so the purpose of Ezekiel 16 is to talk about how Jerusalem was worse than Sodom. Whatever Israel was doing, and we don't have any hint that homosexuality was a huge part of that, whatever they were doing was far worse than what was occurring in Sodom. The term detestable things is used by the NIV, and it's most often used to refer to idolatry, but there are some other references to homosexuality, sexual immorality, child sacrifice, dishonesty, and eating ceremonially unclean food. So it's a vague term, probably includes homosexuality, but it includes a laundry list of other sins as well. 
Third point is that biblically, the primary purpose of Sodom seems to be as a point of comparison. There are 18 other references to Sodom, and only Jude 7 mentions sexual improprieties. It says they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural lust. But it's used as a point of comparison in every one of those 18 passages. It's used to describe sudden judgment in Luke 17, 29. It's compared to the great city in the end times, Revelation 11, 8. Four times it's compared to countries that would be overthrown like Sodom. Six times it's used as a direct comparison to the Israelites. And four times, including twice by Christ, it's to describe Israel as worse than Sodom. If you're looking for optional reading this week, Judges 19 is terrific in terms of the comparison point that I'm trying to make here. And two passages explicitly refer to Sodom's purpose as a point of comparison. Jude 7, Sodom serves as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And 2 Peter 2, 6, God made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So why was Sodom destroyed? Obviously not because its sins were the greatest, but to make it an example, the first judgment against a city Sodom was the first city to receive judgment, not the worst. And keep in mind, this follows the worldwide judgment example of the flood in Genesis 6 through 8. So we had the judgment of the world in 6 through 8, and we had the judgment of a city in chapter 19. Now, we could talk about the politics of homosexuality and uh, political pursuits related to that, but that's a topic for a different day and a much more complicated topic. But what, what about how Christians handle homosexual conduct? One thing I think to note here is that we don't need Genesis 19 to know that the conduct is sinful and thus harmful. There's a a handful of verses that talk about this, Old Testament and New Testament, and it's clearly contrary to God's ideal from Genesis 2 forward. So Genesis 19 is not essential or even useful. It's in fact a distraction to the case against homosexuality as sinful and therefore harmful conduct. Second, we got to note the sad and ironic realization that the church today is often guilty of the sin of Sodom, pride, apathy, failing to help the poor, and a variety of other sexual sins, divorce, extramarital sex, and the like. So we need less time criticizing homosexuals and more time dealing with more serious sin within the church. I like what David Gushy says here, the homosexuality issue does not exhaust the content of Christian social ethics, and sexual ethics do not exhaust the content of the Christian moral vision. There's more to sexual ethics than homosexuality. There's more to morality than sex. Third point is it's important that we distinguish between orientation and choices and decisions. We're all oriented towards lots of things. That's not really all that interesting. The question is, what do you do with that? What are the choices that we make with something? Genesis 4-7, Cain had an anger problem. He was oriented toward anger, but that doesn't excuse murder, right? You've got to make a decision what you're going to do with the orientation that you have. Can homosexuals change? I don't know, perhaps, perhaps in some cases or even all cases. But if not, then abstinence is in their best interest. In any case, the point is not orientation, but the choices of what we do with it. Last point is to note the liberal and conservative errors with this. John 8, verses 3 through 11 is very helpful here. The woman caught in adultery. Remember that Jesus does not chuck stones at her, but he also encourages her at the end of the story to go and leave her life of sin. We should neither condone sin nor condemn the sinner. Neither is loving. One looks loving. That's a false form of tolerance, but we have to be careful how we address the sin. As Jim Bergen notes, no one has ever been humiliated, vilified, or ridiculed into the kingdom of God. 
So a complicated topic, one that the church has not handled well, one that's really important, increasingly important in the years to come, but Genesis 19, not real helpful in helping us deal with the issue. Good to be with you today. If you're uh, looking for previous episodes, look for podcasts on Spotify, Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and interact with me on Facebook. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.